This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here today with Professor Robert Yisrael Alman. Professor Alman is a world-renowned mathematician and economist. He is the 2005 recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for his pioneering work in the field of game theory. He's a professor at the Center for the Study of Rationality at Hebrew University and a founding member of the Stony Brook Center for Game Theory. He is also a passionate Jew and defender of Zion. Welcome, Professor Alman. Good afternoon or good morning. <laughs> I guess it depends on your time zone. Yeah, yeah, we're in uh, seven hours ahead of you. So Professor Alman, obviously you're, you're sitting now in Israel, as you note, seven hours ahead of myself who's here in Maryland. But of course, you, you weren't always in Israel. You weren't born in Israel, as I think your accent will attest. Where were you born and where were you raised? Give us a little bit of background on your early biography, your early life. Well, I was uh, born in Frankfurt in Germany and I spent the first eight years of my life there and I was born in 1930 and then Hitler came to power in 1933 and things went from bad to worse. In 1937 my parents decided to emigrate to leave Germany and with some difficulty my family managed this and we emigrated to the United States. In the process, uh, my parents, who had been fairly comfortable in Frankfurt financially, lost all their money, and they had to work very hard in the United States to support the family, which consisted of my two parents, my brother and myself. Now, in spite of the fact that they worked very hard, my mother held down three jobs and my father two jobs, they did insist on giving their children the best possible education, both general and Jewish, and we had a wonderful childhood. And in spite of the fact that we bought cracked eggs at the grocery because they were a few pennies cheaper than the whole eggs, my childhood was beautiful. Incredible uh, history. I just, I'm, I'm curious what inspired your parents in particular to leave when so many others seem to not doing so, or in many cases, not able to do so. How were they able to leave and what pushed them to leave? I'm, I'm assuming this was before Kristallnacht? Yes, we left a few months before Kristallnacht. We actually left on to Shabaav in 1938. Shabaav is the ninth of the uh, Hebrew month of Av, and it is the anniversary of the destruction of the temple in 7080. In the case of your family, it seems like it was a bit of a redemption on that day. Yes, it very much was, yes. We hadn't left then, or I mean, the people did get out later, yes. They did left my aunt, my father's brother, who was lost her husband in Kristallnacht, actually. Kristallnacht, not many Jews were actually killed. But what happened to him was that he was arrested and he was sent to a concentration camp for a few days. Those few days were enough to kill him because he had diabetes and the Germans had not let him use insulin and he died, simply died because they withheld the insulin from him. 
So Kristallnacht was an awful program, but not many people were directly killed. However, my uncle, my aunt's husband, did die because of that. Later, my aunt made her way to New York after Kristallnacht. She actually lived with us the whole period until I emigrated to Israel. So again, how did your family manage to get out at that time? Was it with great difficulty? They applied for a visa to the United States on the German quota. There was no such thing as a Jewish quarter, so we went on the German quarter, and they got a visa. They got immigrants' visa to the United States. It was a problem, but we had to get an affidavit. An affidavit is a statement of support by somebody living in the United States. So that person guarantees that you will not go and become a burden on the government of the United States or on the state wherever you're living. And we did get an affidavit. And we now I, I remember that one had to study American history, American civics, and my parents had to be examined by the consul in uh, Germany in Stuttgart. There was no consulate in, in Frankfurt. I saw them studying and I was a little boy, not yet eight, and I wanted to study also. My parents gave me some material and I studied and we went to the pilot and the consul interviewed my parents and I suppose he asked them some questions and then my mother said, here this little boy studied American uh, civics also and maybe you ask him some questions. <laughs> so the consul asked me, who is the President of the United States, what's his name? So I said, Rosenfeld. And the consul laughed, laughed and he gave us the visa. Uh, sort of an ethnocentric response from a youngster there. <laughs> Professor, tell me what was your family's Jewish life like? Were they, I know Germany was sort of a very mixed community, I guess predominantly was more secular in nature. Was your family more traditional? My family belonged to the Austritzgemeinde in Frankfurt. I don't like this term, but one might call them ultra-Orthodox. Uh, so they're not like the ultra-Orthodox of today. No black hats, no earlocks. <laughs> Outwardly modern. But it was the community was founded by Rabbi Samson Hirsch, and he actually left the main Orthodox community of Frankfurt sometime in the latter half of the 19th century because he was unhappy with their practices and we wanted to be more traditional. We belonged to that community in Frankfurt. It was actually anti-Zionist because this community was affiliated with Agudat Yisrael. It wasn't affiliated, but most of the members were Agudat Yisrael, which is, one might say, you know, very committed to, to Jewish practice, Jewish law, Torah practice, Torah law. And Agudat Yisrael was not happy with the secular nature of the Zionist enterprise in Israel. So we were actually anti-Zionists at that point. But after the war, which we spent in the United States, in New York City, we changed direction. This was the time of the struggle for the state of Israel. Jews and Arabs were in Palestine, and the Balfour Declaration and the League of Nations had made it clear that Palestine was to be the Jewish national home. And the struggle for the state ensued, which was finally crowned with success in 
1947 and 48. And we changed our approach and we became ardent Zionists in spite of the second nature of the Zionist leadership. So you're a young man living in the United States, obviously living through the war from afar, I'm sure a difficult period. What was going on in your life at that time during the war in terms of your own education? How is that progressing? During the war, I was in elementary and high school. I finished elementary school in 1943, uh, height of the Second World War, and went on to high school. I went to a yeshiva elementary school, what's called our day school in the United States, and went to high school, also a Jewish day school, where we studied Jewish subjects, Talmud in the forenoon and, and secular subject in the afternoon. And I was deeply influenced by two teachers. One was a teacher of mathematics, excellent teacher of mathematics, and one was a teacher of Talmud. So I was, uh, when I finished high school, I was intimately torn between continuing a career in Torah or going over, continuing my education and matters. And one semester, half a year, I did both. I got up very early and went to the university and then to the yeshiva and then back to the university. And it became too much for me. I couldn't take it anymore. It was too uh, too tiring, simply tiring. I, I couldn't take it. And I made the difficult decision to go into a mathematics. And uh, that's it. There, here I am now. <laughs> wow, unbelievable. And, and so... From, from what I've gathered, you studied at, at City University and ultimately at MIT? Correct, yes. I, I went to City College. At that time, it was called City College, uptown, 139th Street. It was a good place and I did a bachelor's in, in mathematics and went on to a doctoral in mathematics at MIT. Then I did a postdoctoral stint at Princeton University in which I was introduced to a branch of applied mathematics called operations research. <laughs> I had met John Nash, whom you may have heard. He is the hero of this movie, A Beautiful Mind. Sure. He was the hero of A Beautiful Mind, and so he was one of these of, of uh, game theory. And I learned something about game theory from him already at MIT. And then when I did my postdoc at Princeton, I was able to apply some of those ideas. And as I had done a doctorate in pure mathematics at MIT, at that point, I went into game theory and from there into economics. So that's where we are now, yeah. What was Jewish life like during that period at these elite institutions, MIT and Princeton? Was this before there was a, a real influx of Jewish students into those schools or were there already a strong representation there? Well, at MIT, I, there were quite a few Jewish students, I imagine. I mean, uh, you find Jewish students in, in educational institutions all around the world. Uh, there were very few Orthodox students. Yes, sure. I, I was one first, one of the first, we were a handful of the MIT who were kippot. Really, I, th- I think there were very few or none before us uh, in the graduate school of Princeton, and very few at City College for that matter. Really? Okay. Very I few were wearing kippot at City College. I think we and two or three of my friends were the first, yeah. even in City College. Uh, City College is free. It does, or it was. I think now it costs a small sum. At that time, it was free. There was no tuition fee. 
And that's what attracted me to City College, because a lot of Jews, not only my parents, but also a lot of other people in the 30s, 20s and 30s and teens, Jews were coming to the United States and they didn't have any money, but they did have ambitions and they wanted to study like me. And it was impossible to go to NYU or to Columbia or uh, those places here not to speak of Princeton or, or MIT as an undergraduate, okay? Right. That was out of the question. Okay. So what attracted us to City was that it was free, and also it was a top-notch institution. But now, like I say, you've come a long way, baby, and the Jews are much more affluent in the United States than they were. City College was 90% Jewish, the students, I'm not talking about the faculty, but the students, 90% Jewish, 8% Italian, 2% black. That was the composition, more or less. I don't know what the figures are now, but it's certainly far fewer Jews. The Jews are now going to Harvard and Princeton and NYU and Columbia and what have you. It's not that way anymore. A different world. Professor, how did you end up now in Israel? Did you work for a long time first in the United States before coming to Israel? Or was that something you did early in your adult life, early in your career? I did it early in the career. In fact, right after the post office. As I say, my brother and I became ardent Zionists and, and my parents also in the period between uh, 45 and 48. And we made a determination to uh, make Aliyah come to Israel, to immigrate to Israel. And uh, my brother did that right away in 1950. I should say my brother, Oliver Shalom, because I l lost my brother just a couple of months ago. I'm sorry to hear that. He's an older brother. He was over 90. He was a wonderful person. We were very, very close. But he actually seated me. He came to Israel in 1950 when Israel was still in his diapers. It was two years old, okay, in 1950. And my brother made Aliyah at that point. And I said, well, I would finish my doctorate before making Aliyah. And after my doctorate, and I did a postdoc at Princeton, and then, indeed, I immediately made Aliyah. And I've been here at this university, at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I actually came in the, in the middle of the Suez campaign, and we drove from the airport to Jerusalem at night without lights because we were concerned about air raids from, by the Egyptians. It was the middle of the sun, I think. October of 56. They were uh, heady days. I think now we also have heady days. The state is still uh, being created. And uh, I think the, the whole country was, there, there was not this post-Zionism that you find now, which is, I think, gets more headlines than is actually felt in the country. I mean, the country is still Zionist, and, but you, you have to make a lot of noise, uh, and they have a disproportionate influence in the media, they have a very disproportionate influence in academia, in the legal system, in the lower echelons of the government, yes. I mean, you might say the government is a Likud, center-right government, but uh, that is only in the upper echelons. The, the lower echelons of the government are controlled still 
uh, left, center left, left. So, so the, these people have a disproportionate influence. But the country as a whole, I think, is very honest at this point. That's, I guess, reassuring to hear. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about your, your professional work and your achievements. People throw around, around these words, like game theory, which has been, I guess, your pioneering work, the work for which you've been most noted, publicly at least. Can you explain, just in perhaps in layman's terms, if, if that's possible, what is game theory and what is sort of the general body of academic research to which you have been so devoted throughout your career? Uh, well, game theory is the analysis of uh, situations in which several entities are involved that are striving to different goals. So the simplest example of a situation in which uh, comes under the heading of game theory is a game. Imagine that. <laughs> so a game like chess, you have two players, black and white, and they are striving to different goals because each one wants to win. And if black wins and white loses, okay, you can uh, avoid that. They are striving to different goals. In fact, in chess, it's opposite goals. But in most games, it's not opposite goals. Or in uh, card games, card games with two players or with more than two players. When you have two players, they're striving to opposite goals again. When you have more than two players, it's not opposite because you can't have three objects that are opposite each other. Opposite, you can only have two. And so they're, they're striving to different goals. In a card game, which is being played for money, each one wants to make more money for himself, which is different from what the other each So each one has a different goal. And those are just examples. And that, that's where game theory gets its name from. But more important are games like business, commerce, politics, where there are all kinds of entities involved which are striving to different goals. So in business, everybody wants to make money for himself. So I don't mind if you make money, but that's not my goal. My goal is that I make money, okay? That's in business. I have no objection if we both make money, but they are different goals. And for example, if you're selling me a house, Okay, so we're both interested in uh, consummating the transaction, but you want a higher price and I want to pay a lower price. So our goals are different. They're not opposite, but they're different. And those are the important applications of game theory in law, in business, in economics, and all those things are the important applications of game theory. And the first application of game theory, the original application, is to things. But then right after that, on its heels, came the application to economics. So... The founders of game theory were two people called Oscar Morgenstern and John von Neumann. And they wrote this book, which was published in 1944, called The Theory of Games and Economic Behavior. And that really started discipline going. And the main application ever since then has been to economic theory economic practice. And that's why uh, this was connected to the rise in economics. I'm curious why thing like game theory seems to be so bound up with human psychology, with a predictive ability 
to understand what an adversary or even just another you know participant in a transaction is going to do. Why is it that game theory is sort of a subset of economics and mathematics as opposed to a subset of psychology? Well, uh, first of all, I want to take issue with you that uh, it's not a, a sub-discipline of economics. On the contrary, economics is a sub-discipline of things. Fair, fair enough. But, okay. uh, <laughs> but because there are many other disciplines uh, that are encompassed within game theory, political science, international relations, law, even biology, where you have different species competing with each other. So uh, we have all those things, and economics is one of the subjects on which game theory impinges. So I, I wouldn't call economics actually to be serious a sub-discipline of game theory because there are different approaches to economics, and not necessarily a game theoretic approach, and in all these disciplines there are different approaches. But game theory uh, is one of the approaches in, in each of the disciplines I mentioned. Now, you say, why not psychology? Because that's exactly what we do not do in game theory, okay? <laughs> we do not take into account the psychological aspect, pure game theory, one might say. I mean, when we go to applications, of course, we take into account everything. But the, the central idea of game theory is not the psychological aspect. The rational, logical aspect, the strategic aspect, one might say, okay? Strategic. And you want to be able to say, well, if the other side is behaving strategically, and, and, and I want to behave strategically to further my goal. So we are not looking at a psychological aspect. I mean, in, in practical applications, we do make use of psychology. And here you mentioned the center for the study of rationality, uh, the Federman Center for the study of rationality at the Hebrew University. And we have psychologists here. We do have psychologists, and they play an important role here. But that is not the main thrust of game theory. Interesting. I would imagine, you know, that when you, you talk about application, I mean, people don't typically act along rational lines exclusively. People are constantly impacted by their own mishigas, we might say, but they aren't acting according to any kind of algorithm. That's what I think distinguishes human beings from a computer, perhaps, in that respect. Is it not? Actually, you're raising a point which is a point of some dispute in economics. In economics, we have mainstream in economics, and we have behavioral economics, okay. which came into prominence uh, with uh, the work of the psychologists Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, and Kahneman was actually awarded the Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel in 02 for his work in, uh, in seeing the role that uh, psychology plays in economics. But at the same time that Kahneman got the prize, he actually shared it with another economist. Now Kahneman was, uh, his thesis was that people do not behave rationally. But this other economist with whom uh, Kahneman shared the prize, his name was Vernon Smith. And he also did experiments and surveys just like uh, Tversky and Kahneman. And he showed that people do behave in accordance with the economic theory. Now, mainstream economic theory holds that people in general, whether they uh, calculate things 
is not the subject of discussion in mainstream economic theory, but mainstream economic theory does do maximizations and does assume that one way or another people maximize do as best they can for themselves as is possible under the circumstances in the interaction with other people. And so uh, these two things are epitomized somehow by the Nobel Prize in O2. The answer probably is that People do not calculate, but they act according to rules, rules of thumb that usually give optimal answers, that usually are best for them. These are rules of thumb that have evolved uh, over the centuries, over the millennia, if you wish. Yes. The rules uh, evolved and people go by these rules because usually the rules lead to good results. So really there's no basic difference between behavioral economics and mainstream economics, although one would think there is. I think the difference comes in unusual situations and contrived situations, okay? When people ask trick questions, then they answer wrong because it's not the common scenario. But in common scenario, the rules and the heuristics that Tversky and Kahneman uncovered actually give optimal results. The interesting thing is that they themselves, Tversky and Kahneman themselves, in their original paper in Science in 1974, pointed this out. They said the heuristics usually give good results, yes, but sometimes they give systematically poor results. By doing calculations and going in accordance with mainstream economic theory, you usually get the correct result, especially when people are talking about big money, okay? <laughs> so even now the big money could be in a corporation that has a ton of billions of dollars a year, or you could be talking about big money, which is big for an individual person when he's buying a car or he's buying a house, yeah? You don't have to be very rich for that. You can buy a house if you're a middle class or upper middle class. And, and you still you think things over very, very carefully before you uh, go there. So I think the places where behavioral economics says um, people go wrong, I don't think they occur in those situations. And Kahneman, by the way, himself says that he has this book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And what he says is that when you think slow, you get it right. How would you say that game theory can be helpful or instructive in today's geopolitical environment, today's very unstable world in Israel in particular, which of course is constantly threatened by a variety of, of adversaries, so many who seek its destruction, but also countries that recognize its strength and its its value to the economic system of the world and the and, and other other ways, and who may not appreciate Israel philosophically, but maybe pragmatically, and others who disregard that and simply want its destruction. I mean, how does game theory apply, at least at a very basic level, to some of these thorny questions? Well, you ask about a basic level and. And I'll answer you on a basic level. The fundamental idea of game theory is that people act to promote their goals. So you have to take that into account. Now, that, that seems almost like a, a tautology. Yes? It's obvious that people act to promote their goals. But that is not taken into account in national relations. 
the, the idea is that one has to give incentive to the other side to cooperate with you, to play along with you. It has to be good for them. It has to be worthwhile for them. And very often we give the opposite of giving proper incentives. We give disincentives for the other side. For example, I'll just give you one example. We had the uh, disengagement from Gaza about uh, 12 years. Uh, that, uh, that came on the heels of a wave of terror attacks on Israel. So respond to a wave of terror attacks by withdrawing, then what message does that send? <laughs> It's so obvious, yes, that, you know, I don't understand. I mean, I think Sharon did have an incentive because uh, the, he was seen as a right-wing leader. And as I was saying before, much of the legal establishment in Israel is, say, left-wing, post-Zionist, something like this. And they, uh, they were on his heels to, to try to pull him from being prime minister because they wanted to accuse accuse him of all kinds of wrongdoing, some of which may have been, some of those accusations uh, may have been correct, actually. So he had to defend himself. He had an incentive to do this personally, to make believe that he is a post-Zionist himself. And the, the moment he did that, the moment he announced the uh, withdrawal from the uh, Gaza Strip, the law pulled its hand off and uh, there was no, no longer any discussion. This was actually made explicit. Hands off, Sharon. And so I can understand Sharon had the incentives to do it. So on personal. Personal incentives, yeah. The whole Israeli army, the Israeli establishment, everybody went along with him, went along with this disengagement. And they are, I, I think they were simply being uh, irrational. Uh, because what were you doing? They were saying to the other side, all you have to do is attack us and we will withdraw. So what better incentive could there be than to attack us? And sure enough, that's how it happened. Yeah. Immediately after the disengagement, we were subjected to a bombing uh, attacks from the from Lebanon, from the Hezbollah. This caused the, what's called the Second Lebanon War in the summer of 06. And afterwards, we had a string of attacks from from the Gaza Strip. First of all, we lost the Gaza Strip to the Hamas. I know we lost. I mean, the, uh, the establishment in territory, yeah. Abu Mazen and those people, yes, they're anti-Israeli enough, but the Hamas is extremely anti-Israeli. So the Fatah lost the elections there. The Hamas took over. And uh, there ensued a string of engagements, a string of wars. We have these tunnels. We have the bombing, constant missile attacks from the Gaza Strip, and they, they were really doing what could be expected of them, because we sent the signal, all you have to do is attack us, and we will withdraw, that's the signal we sent. So we were giving them incentives to attack us. I think that insight, as simple and basic as it is, you ask for basic insight. Yeah. People don't realize that. The other side will act in accordance with its incentives. And it's the ABC of game theory. The government reach out to people like yourself to solicit guidance in this arena? I think it may have. They didn't reach out to, to me personally that much. They did once or twice. But they didn't always, uh, I said they should do. <laughs> so uh, I, I have not been a big hit with the Israeli government on a uh, operational basis.
case. Got it. Professor, I want to switch gears now and, and, and talk a little bit about the, the Nobel Prize. Obviously a great honor and I would imagine a, a pinnacle of one's career, but I'm very curious about the personal aspect of this and, and in particular you as a Jew, as a, as a visibly observant Jew. First of all, where were you when you found out that you won the prize? How did you find out? What was that experience and that moment like? Well, I was 10 meters away from where I am now. I was in, the, uh, in my office in the Center for the Study of Rationality at Hebrew University. And the phone rang, and they said, he came from the Swedish Academy of Sciences. Good morning, Professor Alman. I said, good morning, what can I do for you? Yes, I, I didn't have the slightest idea of what was about to happen. I thought they wanted some information from me, some recommendations, this or that. They told me about the prize, and they asked me to be prepared in 20 minutes uh, to speak with them on the phone for a phone interview, and in the meantime, not to tell anybody. So I went to the door, and I locked it from the inside, and I sat down at my computer, and I finished a letter that I was writing to a colleague in Belgium about a scientific matter, because I realized that in the next few months, I wouldn't have time to finish that. <laughs> so I finished it on the spot and sent it off. And then 20 minutes later, the people started pounding on my door, but I didn't answer. Until my son came and he said, Abba, Dad, uh, here's Jonathan, uh, please open the door. So I just opened it a crack to let him in. And then he arranged for a conference here in my building. And, uh, and finally, a few hours later, the news conference was over and I'd spoken with everybody and congratulations and this and that. And then I was leaving the building and as I was leaving the building, two newspaper people came in and they said, do you know where Professor Almond's office is? <laughs> so I said, it's upstairs, but I think he left already. Okay. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. I guess it was a couple of months later that the actual ceremony took place? Yes, yes. Actually, this was three days for young people. Wow. So that was when, when the prize was announced. And on Yom Kippur, I went to a synagogue where my daughter usually, uh, for several years I spent Yom Kippur with my daughter. I'm married daughter. She has six children, a lot of grandchildren, great so, so I attended the service at her synagogue, and they gave me an aliyah. They called me to the Torah, and I went up and and I said the blessings over the Torah. Yeah. The gabai, the man who makes the decisions, who gets these honors, said to me, Professor Alman, you are making difficulties for us. Now everyone who gets the Nobel Prize will think that he can get an aliyah on your paper in our synagogue. <laughs> That's a fantastic line. That's great. So now, fast forwarding to the ceremony itself. I imagine that you yeah. flew to Sweden. You were with family. What was that like as a Jew and as an observant Jew? Well, it was great. <laughs> I brought with me my brother and some of my colleagues here and the administrator of the unit of the Center for the Study of Rationality, a lovely, lovely lady who I've been working with now for uh, over a quarter of a, a century. And also my entire immediate family, my wife and all my children, 
and all my grandchildren. And this group is now over 60 people. But at that time, it was only about 35 or something like that. I brought them all along, and it was a lot of fun, which I say it's highly recommended. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give it a try. You know, each Nobel Prize, mine was actually shared. I shared it with uh, an American, uh, actually a political scientist, not an economist, uh, called Thomas Schelling, prominent person. He was very active in this Cold War strategy, by the way, because of his game and the Cold War. It was a big success because not only did we win, it never turned hot. And that was the biggest success. Cold War that doesn't turn hot, that's great. And one of the architects of the Cold War, American strategy in the Cold War, was Thomas Schelling, who shared the Nobel Prize with me. In, in each category, one of the winners is asked to make a short after-dinner speech. It was a big banquet there. 1,400 people at the bank. Tom asked me to do the speech, and I did it for two minutes. And I began the speech with a blessing, a bracha. And I said, Baruch atah Hashem elokeinu melech haolam atov which is, translates, blessed are you, our God, the king of the universe, who is good and does good. And that's how I began my speech. I was, by the way, introduced in English and in Swedish and in Hebrew. By the <laughs> Hebrew, yes. Not enough Hebrew to, to introduce. And I had not told anybody the contents of my speech, but my whole family was there sitting together and they all said, Amen, out loud. And then I explained why I had pronounced this blessing. I had pronounced it because this is a traditional blessing for a person who drinks wine. And the blessing on wine is You bless the Lord who created the fruit of the vine, created grapes, and from grapes you make wine. And that is when you drink your first cup of wine and also for the second and third. And if somebody serves a particularly exquisite wine, then you pronounce this blessing of and I explained that my whole career in Israel had been bringing up my family and been a very satisfying career. But getting Nobel Prize on top of it is like tasting an exquisite wine. So I started with that blessing. I'm just curious, as you're going up onto the stage to receive this prize, and really throughout the whole ordeal, the whole experience there, how conscious were you of your Jewishness, of your representing something bigger than just yourself, perhaps of perpetuating what we'd call a Kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of God's name? Was that something that was front and center in your mind as you were participating in these experiences, as you were receiving the prize specifically? Well, I don't really remember, but I think not. I just did it like it had to be done, like it was supposed to be done. And I don't think I had any uh, grandiose feelings or historical this or that. (laughs) Uh, No, no. I I can tell you this. uh, One of the greatest moments 
in Stockholm was when we went in front of the Grand Hotel where all the Nobel laureates and their entourages were staying. And somebody told me to look up at the roof of the Grand Hotel. Now, on the roof of the Grand Hotel is the flag of Sweden in the middle. But then three flags on each side representing the countries of the Nobel laureates. And right next to the flag of Sweden was the flag of Israel. And that did something to me. I mean, seeing that was a a very moving moment for me. A beautiful way, I think, to to sort of wrap up our conversation. And I just would be remiss if I didn't ask you, as a preeminent game theorist, first of all, are you a great poker player? never play poker. You have to know not only the theory, but also the practice, yes. Uh, You know, I know all about the theory of playing a piano, but I don't know how to play a piano. So that's a matter of practice. But I'm not bad. You know, a few years ago, I did play around the poker, and I came out ahead. (laughs) There you go. What what would you say is your favorite game, Professor? I suppose it would be chess. Uh, I don't play a lot. I used to play a lot more, and I'm not very good at it, but I like chess. So I guess, as you say, there is that distinction between theory and application, as in many different disciplines. But I, I imagine you could teach someone how to play chess, perhaps even better than playing it. Well, that's, that's what they say. Those who don't know, teach. Those who can't teach, teach teachers. You've been teaching, and I'm sure teaching teachers for 50 or 60 years now, Professor. But I think you also know quite a bit, and you've certainly taught me quite a bit. And I really am so grateful for your time, for your sharing of of yourself and your expertise, but also your personal story. And I wish you continued blessing, Atova Metiv, blessing in both your professional and personal life. Thank you so much, Professor Alman, for joining us. My pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.